what you allow into your eyes and through your eyes and into your, into your heart, into your mind, it affects your soul. It cracks it sometimes. It affects it sometimes. And so although you have freedom and, and you have liberty and you have access and you pay the subscription, it does not mean it will profit you in your walk with God. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. studying through the book of Psalms. You may also remember that this is the Hebrew hymnal, um, as well as the book of prayer that the nation of Israel would use um, throughout their history. So as we study it, we're looking how we are to approach God in worship. Does anyone remember who compiled the book of Psalms? Who finalized or canonized, basically, the book of Psalms? He's famous. He has a book in the Bible himself. Starts with an E. Ezra. There's Ezekiel or Ezra. Ezra is the right answer. Yes, Ezra is the one who compiled the Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is five volumes. It's split into five different volumes, and each volume mirrors the theme of an Old Testament book, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. There you go. All right, so we are in the book of, <laughs> we're in the beginning stages still here. I was just testing you. I know the books of the Bible. I was testing to see if you knew. Um, yeah. <laughs> but as we come to the Hebrew hymnal, what it teaches us and what it reveals to us is how we are to approach God in worship. How we're, how we're to approach God in worship. And one, of the th- one of the things that we've been learning is that God wants us to approach him in honesty. God wants us to approach him in honesty and that a lack of honesty will prevent intimacy with God. You can come to God and and you can have a relationship with God. It's not going to cast you into hell to to not be honest with the Lord, but you will lack intimacy with God, a closeness with God. If you're thinking tonight, like, I want to go deeper. I want to know God more. Well, start by being honest with who God is and with who you are. Be honest with what you're going through. I think Brendan talked about it in Psalm 27. It was like, God already knows. He already knows. So us coming to the Lord with this like blanket over us of thinking he can't see through is not smart. It's not wise. And it only hinders our relationship with God. And so God desires our intimacy. He encourages us to be as as honest with God and awkward with God. As awkward as it can get. Because David got awkward with God at times. Like we've read it. It's very... um, Explicit in its content. Like it, it, the things that David said, you're like, wow, can you really say that to God? Yeah, you can. You can because it's in your heart. God can see it. So even if you didn't verbalize it, it's not that God can't see it or knows it. And so God calls us to be honest with him. Um, and tonight we're going to see that there's always something to be thankful for. David's going to write in the psalm, it begins with thankfulness and gratefulness, and it ends with thankfulness. And so this is a psalm that begins and ends with thanksgiving. And this psalm is given a title by its writer, not just the editor of your Bible, right? Some of the psalms have have titles and others don't. Some are given by the editor of the book of Psalms and the editor of your Bible. And some are given by the writer themselves. And this is one that gives us a title. And it is there in your Bible, a psalm, a song, 
at the dedication of the house of David. We don't know exactly when this is written or which house this is for, but it could be the palace that David had built after capturing Mount Zion there in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and making Jerusalem the capital again. It could be the temple that was built by Solomon, his son, because although David was not allowed to build the temple himself, it was known as the temple of David because that is where the heart for it came from. You remember David is building his house and he says, how can I build this like for the Lord and, and, or, or in God's dwelling in a tent when I'm dwelling in a palace? And, and so he desires to build this house for the Lord. And God says, you're, you're a man of bloodshed. There's, there's blood on your hands. You can't build me a house. And David said, well, if I can't build you a house, I'm going to gather all the materials. I'm going to get everything together. I'm going to have a spot even where it's going to be built so that when the time comes, my son or my successor can build the temple of the Lord. Maybe it's at that point or that dedication. Um, we're, we're not sure. Maybe it was his summer home. And he's like, I'm dedicating this summer home to the Lord <laughs> or whatever. This apartment to Jesus. Um, we don't know. But I think it serves as a great example for us. A home dedicated to the Lord. To say, Lord, this is yours. Right? We, do, we don't do baby baptisms here uh, at the church. We do baby dedications. Right? Because baptism is something that as an adult or as you understand that it's between you and the Lord. And so you can't force anyone to get baptized and sprinkle, you know, sprinkle a little baby. And he's like, yay. But we do baby dedications. We'll have... Their parents come and they're saying, we're dedicating this child to the Lord. Like he's ours, he's in our care, but God, he's yours. Do as you will with it. And that's what dedication is about. It's saying, God, this is for your honor, for your glory. It's a place where you will be honored. The Bible tells us that we are the temple, however, or the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That God, in his foreknowledge in his desire to be with us, has always had the intention of not just being a God who is eminent and above it all, but God who is Emmanuel, God with us, who is close and personal, who is with us always, eternal. So, so the Holy Spirit dwells within us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, do you not know? All right, this is something we should know. All right? If Paul starts a sentence like that, do you not know? Uh, that pizza's amazing, right? You should know this. Everyone should know this. Every Christian should know this. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Like he dwells within you. And so I think it, it serves as a great launching point for us. Like, is your life dedicated to the honor of God? Your house, like if you're like, I don't own a house, but like you have a room at that house, like is that room, whatever comes through that door, that, that room is dedicated to the Lord, which means I'm the gatekeeper of it. Your own body, your own mind, you are the gatekeeper of that, that thing that God has given you to steward where he dwells. And so what are you allowing in to God's temple? What are you allowing in? We're, we're gatekeepers to it all. Um... There are some things in this life that we cannot help but come in contact with, right? You can't help to like what billboard's on there. You can't help what ad pops up. You can't help what email drops into your box sometimes. You can't, you can't control some of these things. 
It just happens. But there are things that you can control. You, you, you can bring certain things into your house. It reminds me of Achan. And remember when, when he stole the wedge of gold in this like scarf? I don't know. It's kind of weird. Like you stole a scarf? Why, why of all the things, he's like, ooh, that scarf. <laughs> oh, that was, and when it's winter, hello, it's going to look amazing. That's always been weird to me. Like, this is a dude. Um, although I do knit scarves. Um, but it, <laughs> which is a great... Knitting is a great little skill, okay, that every man should learn. It's also the most relaxing thing in the world. Um, in a rocking chair, knitting, unreal, unreal. Uh, get ready to live. <laughs> knit your heart out. Um, so, moving on, enough about my personal life, more about Jesus. There are things that we can control. There are things that we can allow into our lives. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, all things, right? All things are lawful for me, right? We can, we can stop at that sentence and be like, hey, all things are lawful for me. I have freedom. I live in America for crying out loud. Freedom. I have a flag on my car. I, have, I, I rejoice in freedom. I bathe in freedom. We rejoice in our freedoms. Trump, this is what it's all about. Freedom this, freedom that. But what did Paul say? Not all things are profitable for you. Christian. So I have freedom. Absolutely I do. I have freedom within the law. There's a lot of things legal nowadays that aren't necessarily profitable for you, is it? There are legal things that we can do within the law. We can say, hey, it's legal. I'm this age. But Paul says, not all things are profitable for you. Not all things are beneficial to your walk with God and not all things are beneficial as a, as a person who's trying to walk in this world worthy of the call that God has put upon your life. So there are certain things, guys, although they are lawful for us, we have freedom in Christ. We also have freedom to say no and to be a, a wise gatekeeper into our lives, our heart, and our soul. Listen, things affect your soul. Through your eyes, through your ears, it affects your soul. Because you're not just a body, you are a soul, right? You're not just a body. It's not like, well, it's, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. It's like it's not a big deal. You are a soul. And what you allow into your eyes and through your eyes and into your into your heart, into your mind, it affects your soul. It cracks it sometimes. It affects it sometimes. And so although you have freedom and, and you have liberty and you have access and you pay the subscription, it does not mean it will profit you in your walk with God. And so the encouragement, I believe, from Scripture is this. Are we a house dedicated to the Lord? Meaning in this house or in this body, the Lord will be honored. He'll be honored. He'll be glorified. Above all else, that is the purpose in which I live my life. So although it's lawful for me, I cut that out because I don't want that. I restrict a lot of things or I restrict things that come into my life because this temple is dedicated to the worship of the Lord. Even the temple in Jesus' time periodically was cleaned out. 
It had to be cleaned out because stuff crept in that didn't need to be there. Remember, Jesus made a whip and he drove out the money changers and the animals. And he says, this place is to be a house of prayer and you've made it into a den of thieves. This is not what it's dedicated for. This is not the purpose of it. Prayer, it's a place where we can pray. What is prayer? What's the purpose of it? It's a place where we communicate and have intimacy with God and commune with God. And so... To the soul is a place that God has given to us in which we can commune and have fellowship with him. And so sometimes we've got to allow Jesus to come in. Lord, is there, like David says, Lord, search my heart. See, is there any wicked way in me? Is there certain things I'm allowing in or temptation the devil's throwing my way and I'm just like, yeah, it's lawful. Like, I'm of age. Like, whatever. Is it a big deal? It's not a big deal. It's whatever. Guys, we have to look farther than right in front of our faces. Does that make any sense? There are times where I look at you guys and I think to myself, dang it, I'm old. Because I remember, at like your age, which is, is weird. Sorry, I don't mean to weird you out. I was getting married at your age. I was 21. I was getting married when I was 24. Anyone in here 24? I had my first kid when I was 24. And my second, I was 25. And here I am at 36. And there are certain things in my life How do I say this the right way? <laughs> there are certain things that at 25 or at 21 that I regret. Like, like this says, not dedicating to the Lord. So, we haven't even read verse 1 yet. The temple was a place that was dedicated to the Lord, and it was periodically cleaned out. It was a place where we were dedicating to, to enjoying sweet fellowship with God. That doesn't mean we didn't enjoy what we enjoy and food and whatever. And it just means that there are certain things that don't belong. They just don't belong. You ever been to a house and you're looking around the decorations and you're like, that does not belong. Like that's weird there. Right? Same thing in our life. Like you, if the Lord were to come in into your, the living room of your heart uh, to be cheesy and like look around and be like, that does not belong there. It shouldn't be there. And what's great is that each of us, listen, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, which means you pray, you seek God, and when the Holy Spirit, who is a personal God, touches you and says this right here, not only does it not belong, but it's becoming a foothold in your life. It needs to go. Guys, there's grace. There's grace. Like we said, you can be super honest with God and be like, God, this is a foothold I'm sorry, and also I'm not strong enough to throw it out. And the Holy Spirit says, I am. Like, I can help you. I've come to give you power to live a victorious Christian life. The power to do it. And so, um, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. The word extol, which is a word I had no idea what it meant, it means simply to lift up. 
It means to make high, to, to lift above, to place high above. Because he says, I'm going to extol or I'm going to lift up the name of God. I'm going I'm to praise him and worship him. For you have lifted me up. He says, I, I, I'm going to give you praise, God. I'm going to worship you. It's this call to an attitude of worship and praise to God because of what God has done in his life. And he's going to go on to explain that in deeper measure. But he says, I'm going to lift up the name of God. I'm going to make it high in my life. I'm going to put it above everything else because you have lifted me up. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You've put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You've turned my mourning into dancing, he says. Not only that, but look at verse 4. He says, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. He, he has an attitude of worship and honor and thanksgiving to the Lord in the believer first, but then it encourages other believers as well. He first turns the, the mirror on himself and he says, God, I have so much to give you praise for. I have so much to give you thanks for. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to extol your name. I'm going to make you high. And as I do that, I'm going to encourage others as well. Hey, you need to lift up the name of Jesus in your life. You need to lift up not essential oils, but Jesus in your life. Like you need to lift up, although Boba's holy and good, like lift up the name of Jesus above all things. Lift, up, lift him up above all that stuff. The temporal and what we can, we, we can see with our eyes. We need to lift Jesus higher than those things. But not only me, but in, in exhortation to, the, to others to worship. And an attitude of worship in a believer encourages other believers. Encourages other believers. Why? Why is that? Look what it says in verse 1b. He says, and how, you have not let my foes rejoice over me. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. First of all, he, he point, at, at this point in David's life, he looks back on the valley of his life and he sees the enemies and the foes that had come against him. And he says, I'm still standing. Like, I'm still here. I'm still upright. I'm still alive because you watched out for me. You've kept me. I bear the marks of the battle, but I'm still here. I bear the marks and the scars of it. But in all of it, I look back on the, on the valley that is my life. And as I walk this ascent to your holy hill, until I meet you in heaven, it says, I look back and I see, God, you have kept me. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy. You have upheld me. You, you've kept me. You, you've strengthened me. God, and I'm still standing here. I have scars all over me. It's because I've been in the battle. I've been getting beat, but I'm still alive. Like the, the enemies have not beat me because of you. Because of you. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Paul says, I am pressed on every side, but I am not overtaken. I'm not crushed. I'm worried. I'm perplexed. 
I'm scared even, but I'm never left alone. I'm still standing. I'm here. And if you look at it from that standpoint, and I encourage you to do this today, before you go home, before we continue in worship after the study, to look back over your life. That does not mean you, you don't have mess ups, screw ups, scars, and you bear, the, you bear the consequences of it, but you're still here in the presence of God. Like that, that's what he says. That's why I'm gonna rejoice because the enemy hasn't won. And he never will. He never will. Like the sustaining power of God in your life will never fail. It doesn't fail. It doesn't run out. It's not that God takes a vacation and gets tired and he's like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. It's too much. Like Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. It's done. Therefore, you will never, you never have to be overtaken by the enemy. You may bear scars from it. You bear, you bear the marks of it. You may be discouraged, but guess what? You're still here. Still here. So that is the reason he gives for worship. For worship. He's faithful and sustains and strengthens Guys, if you are caught in the middle of it, sometimes your, your present circumstance and like what you're currently going through, and I don't ever want to minimize what people are going through, but sometimes it can be so much like right in front of your face that you don't have any, any room to look backwards and see like, okay, there he came through and there he came through and like, um, oh yeah, that one. And, and in the midst of it, you're like, yeah, like, I, I don't see a way out of this, but, but look at the back, like, look behind you. Like, he's done it, and you're still here. So, he then goes on to, to praise God because the enemy has not won, but he has been defeated. So, too, in the life of the believer. Guys, we may, we may fail, we may stray, um, we may bear the, the consequences of decisions that we make. But the fact of the matter is, if you have breath in your lungs, you are still here and you can still enter the presence of God just by speaking. Like just by speaking, by talking, like God's there. He's with us. He's among us. He's with us always. And then he, he says in verse two, um, oh Lord, my God, I cried to you and you healed me. At some point, David's on the brink of death, but the Lord touched him and heals him. He brings him back to life. He says, he's kept me alive and I'm praising God for his healing in my life. But look at this one. It takes a, an interesting turn in verse five. He says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for life. This is one that like memorize this one. Like take this home and memorize this. His anger is but for a moment and his favor is for life. And he says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He says, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. What in the world? Did you notice the shift from praising and worshiping God? He recounts a moment in his life where he says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. 
So there was a time in David's life where God was prospering the nation of Israel in a crazy way. Like they were, they were wealthy, they were growing as a nation, they were safe, their borders were safe. I mean, it, it, God was blessing his people. And David looked at all of it. He looks at his palace, he looks at his, everything he's accomplished. He looks at the, at the site of where the temple will be built and he's like, I shall not be moved. And in, in, in other words, like pat me on the back and call me king. Kiss me because I am beautiful. Like, look what I have done. And no one's going to shake it because God has prophesied over me that a, a descendant of David will never, ever stop or cease to sit on the throne because I am David and I shall not be moved. Okay, it's just this instant where he's, he's recounting like, I was so prosperous. Now, the Bible recounts this for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So turn your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's in the Old Testament. And what I love about the Bible, and again, gives authenticity to the Word of God, is that the Bible paints its heroes in, like warts and all. It does not hold back. I know warts is a weird word. But it, it does not hold back any of their mistakes. Like this is David. He is the most famous person of all of Israel's history. Second only to Mo, or, or Moses is only like the closest guy to him. Like it's Moses and David, right? In Israel. But the Bible never veers away from their imperfections. So first Chronicles chapter 21, starting in verse one, it says this. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Now it seems like it's not a big deal. Like what's the big deal in that? David says, we're going to take a census. But it wasn't like a census like in, in where Caesar took a census that he made tax the nations, right, in, in the Gospels and when, and when Jesus was being born. This census was, was with the purpose of finding out how many men there were in Israel to kind of compile how big the army of Israel would be. Like, how powerful are we, is basically what he's saying. How many foot soldiers do we have? How powerful are we? And this was a major no-no. Like, you do not do this. In fact, God even said... In the law of Moses, in the book of Exodus, he said, do not do this. It was when David was prosperous and he calls himself a mountain that he could not be moved. He stopped trusting in God and he began to trust in his armies and his achievements. And he was puffed up with pride. And so God acts to bring his servant to a place of humility. And when in the history of Israel did it ever matter how big their army was? Has that ever been a thing? In, in all of the scriptures that you have read, has it ever been like they overcame because their army was the biggest and the strongest and they had the most chariots and the most horses? Or does it always say there was never enough, but God was enough? Is that always the story of Israel? 
Absolutely. It was never the emphasis of Israel how big their army was. It was always the emphasis of how big their God was. Take, for instance, Gideon. He's got 21,000 soldiers, and God says, Gideon, we got a problem. And Gideon's like, I know, we don't have enough soldiers. He's like, no, 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 there's too many. There's too many. It was always that. But here, David takes a census. It takes a census, and, and according to Exodus, this was something that kings were never supposed to do. Never supposed to do. When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for life at his time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them, it said. It was up to God to command a census, and if David counted, he should have done it at God's command, receiving a ransom to atone for the counting. This is why David was angry, or God was angry again with Israel. And this is also why David was conscious stricken after he counted Israel. David knew it was wrong, and he begged God to take away the guilt of, of his sin in 2 Samuel chapter 24. But this is, again, a recounting of that story. Now, God tells David, verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Oh, man. Three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. He says, David, there's a consequences, and you have three choices. Pick one. Has that ever happened to you when your parents told you, go pick your own or cut your own switch? You know what happened to you? That you're like a stick to spank you with? Has that ever happened to you? Like, which one? My dad would lay out a sandal, ping pong paddle, or like a stick. And you're like, that one's going to break my back. Uh, if I pick that one, he's just going to laugh at me. You know, like, which one do I pick? You know, or, or, anyway, I'm sick. Anyway, that's basically what he's presented with. Like, here's three options. Three options. And you're going to pick which, which punishment you want. Oh, man. I can't wait to do this to my kids. Like, which one do you want? Because it's coming. No, I'm just kidding. So Gad said, came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself three years of famine, three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord. The plague in the land with an angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David, which one do you want? Do you want a famine for three years? Imagine what three years of famine would do to the people of Israel. He says, or you can have three months where your enemies will just come in and defeat you. And they'll conquer you for three months. Or... For three days, the angel of the Lord will bring a sword. So you can have a natural disaster. You can be left to the hands of men, the cruelty of men. Or you can put yourself in the hands of the Lord. And David says, said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Look at this, look at this. For his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. He says, I'm going to choose the Lord. 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just fall into the hands of the Lord because at least I know that God in his character is a God of mercy. So does mercy triumph over judgment? <laughs> in this case, yes, it does. So here's what happens, okay? So David chooses the Lord because he knows, guys, he knows the character of God. He says, I know God, at least I know God is merciful. My enemies, the hand of men, they won't be merciful to us. In a natural disaster for three years, the famine in the land will break us. So God, I throw myself at you. And so for, it seems like it was shorter than three days, but the angel of the Lord came with a drawn sword and 70,000 people died. 70,000 people. But look at this. It goes on. It says, then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over, over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? Am I the one who sinned and done evil indeed? But these sheep, what have they done? Lay your hand. I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. That's funny. There's an angel with a drawn sword over his house. The kids see it, and they run and hide, and Ornan's like, eh, it's the angel of the Lord. What am I going to do? Back to work, and just keep stretching wheat. What a stud. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me in a full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, take it to yourself and let your Lord, the king, do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen, the burnt offering, and the threshing implements for wood and the wheat and the grain offering. I give it all. David says, I'm here to buy your threshing floor. I'm going to make an altar to the Lord here. Will you sell it to me? And Ornan says, sell it to you. You're the king. It's yours. Like, not only will you, you can take it and have it, but here's the oxen. Here's like the, you can use my threshing equipment for, for wood, like to burn. Take it all. It's yours for free. But look at what David says to Ornan in verse 24. No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offering with that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight and place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offering and peace offering and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar and burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to his sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan and Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering from Moses had made in the wilderness were at that time in the high places of Gibeon. But David could not go before, before it, 
to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So this is an interesting passage. David begs the Lord. Like the judgment is coming. And what happens is David and his and his like high priests and all those guys and the elders, they put on sackcloth and they mourn and they stand in the gap and they say, God, like it's it's on me. Like it's my fault. Will you please relent? And the Lord says, I'll relent because there's a sacrifice being made. And it's there at Ornan, on the threshing floor of Ornan. That is the site in which the temple of the Lord is made. Right there. Like where this all happened, David said, this is where the temple will be built, right here on this threshing floor. Because it's always going to serve as a reminder that the judgment of God was thwarted because a sacrifice was made. And hundreds of years later, the greater than David, Jesus, will come to that very site and in that very same city would offer himself as a sacrifice to where the judgment of God is not only thwarted, but it is appeased, satisfied. Because a sacrifice is made. Sacrifice is made. And so David, when he writes this psalm, we go back to Psalm 30, you see what he's going through. He says, at one point I trusted in myself. I got so full of pride and arrogance and the Lord humbled me and I'm reminded that I too need a sacrifice. Like I, I'm, I would have been destroyed had it not been for the hand of the Lord and the sacrifice that he provided. And he says, behold, one thing I desire to the Lord, that will I seek, is the wrong scripture. One page over, he says, you hid your face and I was troubled. But then he says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? Where do I go down to the pit? Will, will the dust praise you? Will, I declare you the, or will, will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. And he says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. And you have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. What does he say? Like, you could have, and I deserved it. But you stopped because you're a merciful God. You're a merciful God. And you desire that all men and all women would experience the mercy of God. And guys, we live in a time where, yes, we are excited for the return of Jesus. But we as the church also, oh man, we, um, we rejoice in the long-suffering of God. We have to. We have to. As, as weird as our world is getting, we must rejoice in the patience, in the patient love of God. Like every time, I'm excited to go to heaven too. Like I, I'm super excited. Um, I feel like my weight will finally be under control um, and my blood pressure will not be so high and, and I won't be subject to like pain and suffering and like in the presence of God for all of eternity. But also, we thank God for his patience. Aren't you glad that God was patient with you and waited till you knew him? And so too, we as the church, we rejoice in his coming and we rejoice in his long suffering. We, we give God praise and thanksgiving because he's not a God who's quick to wrath, but he's, he's long-suffering and he's just and he's merciful. 
Thank God. Thank God. There are so many that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if they don't, guys, hell is no place we'd ever want to go. You never wish it on anybody. Just right now, we're, we're like having the hardest time in this little bit of heat. We're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. And, and oh my gosh, it's so humid. And oh my gosh, like I can't sleep at night. Guys, hell. It burns with a heat that never gives up. It doesn't stop forever and ever and ever. In total darkness. That's the reality of hell. And so although we rejoice in his coming and he is coming soon, we also rejoice and give thanks that God is a patient and loving and merciful God. God, would you be patient? It's, it's like what Abraham prayed there at Sodom and Gomorrah. God, if there's 10 righteous, will you, will you hold? God, will you spare them? If there's, if there's five, will you spare them? And what Abraham was hoping is, God, please, look at the innocent. Look at all these people. God, be merciful. And what Abraham, I believe, experienced is the breaking of the heart that God has for humanity. Like, look, look at all these people. Like, really, they're all going to be destroyed? And God says, exactly. Like, my heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for them. And so too, like, like David is saying, my end would have been destruction had God not been merciful to me. And it's not because, not because I'm king, not because I have all these armies, not because of anything that I did. Man, I, I screwed up royally. He's <laughs> the king. I messed up huge. But what happened? There's a sacrifice in my place. And so that place would always serve as, as a reminder that when the sacrifice was made, there was mercy, there's grace. The wrath of God appeased by the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. And so that's what the writer says. This is why we give thanks. Are you still here? You still have breath in your lungs? You're still standing up? The devil has not beat you, right? You're like, ah, I messed up. But he hasn't beaten you. You're not dead, you're here. You're about to enter in. You have been in the very presence of God. He hasn't beat you. And so like David, he says, I give you thanks. 